While the government tries to hide the consequences of inflation in their official statistics, Americans see and feel it every day. Join the Mises Institute in Tampa on February 17th for our first event of 2024. We'll discuss inflation, its causes, consequences, and cure. Tom DiLorenzo, Joe Salerno, and Patrick Newman will uncover the state's deceit to reveal inflation for what it really is. Deliberate debasement of the dollar to create winners and losers. Sign up now at Mises.org slash Tampa 2024 and use code ACTION24 for 15% off admission. What is the state? How does it preserve itself? What does it fear? These are the questions Murray Rothbard uncovers in his powerful book, Anatomy of the State. Thanks to our generous donors, the Mises Institute is offering a free copy of this Rothbard classic to Human Action Podcast listeners. Get your copy at Mises.org slash H-A-Pod free. That's H-A, like human action, pod free. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Garrett, welcome to the Human Action Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Glad to be here. So, can you, before we dive into the topic, and we're going to be talking about Robert Solo, folks, uh, Garrett, can you just explain uh, your background? Because I think some of our viewers might not be familiar with you. Yeah, I'm an associate professor of economics at George Mason University. I'm at the Center for Study of Public Choice there, uh, which was uh, co-founded by my late colleagues Gordon Tullock, Jim Buchanan. Uh, I'm also at the Mercatus Center. I'm a senior scholar there and BBT professor for the study of capitalism. So, you know, I've done a lot of work. I started off studying monetary economics, moved on to economic growth, uh, did some work on banking, the financial crisis. And now I'm also chief economist at Blue Chip, a nonprofit stablecoin rating agency trying to help the people navigate the murky worlds of cryptocurrency. Okay, great. So the topic for today, uh, Robert Solo recently passed, and then, you know, people are having remembrances on Twitter, and I put out the call, hey, I want to bring somebody on the podcast to talk about him, and people suggested you. So can you explain, um, well, a big picture for somebody who's, yeah, they, they must have heard the name, but they don't really know much mm-hmm. about him. They know maybe there's a growth model associated with him. What's yeah. your... Uh, big picture takeaway in terms of how do we assess uh, Solo's contribution to economics? You know, so Solo was a Keynesian, someone whose training and mental inclination made him think that demand-side policies were going to run the world uh, and, and be really important for preventing depressions, recessions. Uh, but now looking back, his most important contribution was a very neoclassical, perhaps even free market message, uh, which is that uh, what drives productivity is not Marx's Das Kapital, but instead, what drives growth both, ac- both across time and differences in living standards across countries is this much murkier, much more intangible thing. Economists call it sometimes total factor productivity. This, uh, sometimes we call it magic. Um, and sometimes other people will just call it institutional quality. So um, when you see countries with a lot of capital, uh, Robert Solo taught us that um, that capital is not a first order cause of the nation's prosperity. It's closer to a side effect of high productivity, of high innovation, of good institutional quality. So uh, in a way, he helped uh, debunk, a ver- debunk a certain narrow version of the Marxian worldview that capital was ex- central to explaining 
uh, prosperity under capitalism. Okay, so is this a true statement that someone might say, hey, why is the standard of living in the United States so many times higher than in India? Mm -hmm. And off the top of your head, do you you know what a good ballpark is for what coefficient? I mean, it'd be about uh, 10, 20x. Okay. Let me, let me throw that out right there. Uh, let me as of today, it might be more like six eight x. Yeah, Th- that's what I was going to say. Like I knew, yeah, back twenty in years the day, ago would have been like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then okay, um, thanks Biden. Um, so that's my commentary. <laughs> uh, so let's say it's, it's seven or eight. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. And then so one obvious theory or hypothesis to explain it is say, oh well, you know, the U.S. might have eight times as much capital per worker yeah. or yeah. something. And then whatever that number may end up being, and, the, and there's interesting implications in the solo model, or at least the, the version yeah. I learned in grad school about, well, actually, it's a little bit more. But put that aside for a second. But your point is that one of the ways his work has been used is to say, no, it's not so much whatever the excess of capital per work on the U.S. is. It's not so much that that's directly causing, but rather, oh, the U.S. has the rule of law and these other institutional and lower marginal tax rates and da, 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 da. And that and helps that you get the capital. explains both why, yeah. you know, why they had, they've accumulated more capital. But even beyond just the capital element, it's it's not merely that, oh, it's it's a pushing the cause back one step. It's also, again, with at least the, the Cobb-Douglas production function, and I'm curious to, if, you know, to hear your take. Yeah. But I've seen demonstrations where, like in, uh, in Romer's graduate you know, macro book that we, yeah, we yeah, used yeah. at NYU, where it just goes through and says, using the standard workhorse solo model, you cannot use differences in capital per worker to explain no. cross-country because the, it, it scales. It's, it's not just proportional. Like you would, it would need to be – like yeah. you know, eighty times more capital per worker to explain the the differences that we see. Yeah. So his his story is uh, based on just a, a version of looking around and noticing that capital must have pretty strong diminishing returns. So we have a, a few different pieces of evidence that make us think that capital has really strong diminishing returns. Um, and if it has strong, and, and what the, the classic way of looking at it is a very market based reason, which is. And when we look at national measures of income, you know, national income or GDP per person, um, capital gets about one-third of the economic pie and wages and salaries get about two-thirds of the economic pie. And if capital was so important and, and if markets are kind of competitive, capital would be getting a much bigger share of the pie. Profit, So profits and interest together are basically like one-third of the economic pie. And Solo and a lot of other economists uh, look around and say, well, if they're only getting one third of the economic pie, that's a good sign of that uh, capital just isn't that important. So rough back of the envelope estimate is that uh, a nation's productivity depends on basically the cube root of capital. So weaker, weaker than a square root. We all know people have a sense about what a square root looks like. The square root of four is two. Square root of 16 is four. Square root of 100 is 10. Um, his story is not that if you had a hundred times more capital, you'd get a hundred times more output. It's not even that if you had a hundred times more capital, you'd get 10 times more output. It's closer to if you had a hundred times more capital, you get three times more output. So really strong diminishing returns to capital means that, um, uh, differences in capital across countries, differences in machines across countries, even though they're so visible to the naked eye, those are not a primary cause of prosperity. There must be something else driving that. So this is something that Solo, um, that's implicit in his model, that people had sort of mentally kicked around vaguely for a long time. And then Robert Lucas, the great neoclassical economist who just passed away last year, um, 
he um he 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 worked out the math on this in a great paper called Why Doesn't Capital Flow from Rich to Poor Countries? He says, you know, we can all look around and look across countries and tell there's very little capital in the poor countries. If we thought that there were um that capital was equally productive everywhere, that basically people are all the same, institutions are all the same, then capital would naturally flow to poor countries where it's scarce because the because of diminishing returns. If, it, if, a, if something has diminishing returns, it should naturally flow to places where it's scarce. Uh, when there's workers in high demand in Silicon Valley, workers want to go to Silicon Valley because they feel like their work will be paid more there. If cap, capitalists are smart enough to send their capital to the most productive places and they're not clamoring to send it to the places where capital is scarce. This is a sign that it's, uh, A, diminishing returns are important. B, it's a sign that some difference in productivity across – Capital is more productive in some places than others, just as workers are more productive in some places than others. And figuring out why both capital and labor are more productive in the countries we call the rich countries, uh, that's the real puzzle of economics, of macroeconomics, and Solo's model helped us focus attention on that. Okay, great. And so one implication of what you just said, let me just repeat it back to make sure you know we're not sure. losing people – is that if you did think the primary explanation, you look around the world and wow, standards of living are real high some places and not others. Um, and if the, if at least as a first pass, you wanted to say, well, maybe it's because the you know capital per worker is higher in, in some places and others, mm-hmm. that would just then raise the next question is to say, okay, but if that were true then, and you're thinking markets are competitive and da da da, well then clearly on the margin, putting an extra tractor in the United States shouldn't. Shouldn't pay know, off very much compared much to putting, putting it, it in in Senegal, to yeah. putting it in French Guyana, in French Guyana, to putting it in Zimbabwe, right? Right. Uh, you'd it's, say you'd, you'd want to send it to the places where it's scarce because the marginal return should be high, right? right? And as um, with the rise of multinational corporations and blah blah blah, like th- that, there shouldn't be this huge wedge between the earnings to a unit of capital in one country versus the other, if the whole story really is just a, a matter of fundamentals and we all yeah. got the same production function. and da, da, da. If, Yeah, if nations were, or even if the differences in production functions or technology or institutions were small to medium-sized, right, mm-hmm. they would still be the case um, that uh, capital would want to flow to the poor places. The differences in capital across countries are about as big as differences in income, ballpark, right? So if we're looking between the rich and the poor countries, the 90th 90th percentile of countries to the 10th percentile of countries in income per person, that's a difference today of about 20 or so, right? And if we look at differences in capital across countries among those same countries, well, it'll be in that ballpark, 20 or so. Capital per worker differs by a factor of about 20. Output per worker differs by about a factor of 20. Um, if you look at that and you think, well, maybe that's just a sign. It's a linear, maybe maybe the, the capital would do it. So Lucas's story is the greed of capitalists would solve that problem if it were the problem. The uh, uh, Bill Easterly and the development economists have said, hey, you know, we've run some experiments over the last, you know, since World War II, where we ran huge aid programs. And we we tried out the theory that capital was the uh, was the key absence of capital was the key cause of poverty and said, let's send a bunch of capital to poor countries. Let's build dams. Let's build electrical systems. Let's build steel mills. Um, and when people have run that, we found that it does not cause prosperity. It does not kickstart or jumpstart prosperity, which is something you would believe if you thought that absence of capital was the crucial explanation for global poverty. Okay, great. So partly why I'm hitting this so much is, uh, and I think you know this, Gary, we talked a little bit offline about it. In the Austrian tradition, there really is a 
a strong emphasis on the importance of capital accumulation, mm-hmm. you know, going back, I mean, obviously this comes at least back to Bombard, but I know Mises and Rothbard yep, yep. explicitly said yep. that, hey, uh, there's this notion among the public that the reason we're so much wealthier today than 100 years ago is because of scientific innovation. And yes, that's true, but let's not overlook the important, you know, the importance of just saving and living below your means because they were, you know, being very Frugality, like, right? Yeah. yeah. Puritan. It's a great virtue, of course, yes. right? Yeah. To, like to, to make sure people understood, no, saving and investment matters. And even if we held technology fixed, if one nation, you know, has a 20% savings rate and the other nation has a 1% over time, that's really going to... And and so then when in grad school, like coming with that, you know, mentality, then in grad yep, school yep. studying the standard results with the solo model, it seemed like they were saying the op, not, maybe not the opposite, but saying, yeah, in the long run, you can't explain higher per cap, at least in the steady state. Maybe they were doing something with one derivative or something, but you can't explain anyway. It has, so higher savings rate is according to Solo's framework, um, uh, more, a higher savings rate, um, you know, greater frugality in the population does help in the long run, just not as much as you'd expect. And again, back of the envelope story here is that it basically helps at a square root rate. So doubling your savings rate, um, excuse me, if a country went from a quadrupled its savings rate, if it went from saving 10% of its income to 40%, in the very long run, that would about double your income. So, Mm -hmm. which is nice, right? I mean, it's good to have twice as much money, right? Um, But that's not going to get us the difference in the wealth. That's not going to explain the wealth of nations, right? Okay. When we see some countries mm -hmm. that are 20 times richer than other countries. That's not because of differences in savings rates, according to Solo. Okay, the, the diminishing returns to capital is such a superpower. Okay, and the, and there's that. And Okay, so there's that element, but also, is it also true to say, if what you're trying to explain is the difference in growth rates, that that would just be a level effect? Oh yeah, that's true as well. So a permanent difference in savings rates, um, so one country that saves four times as much as another, according to Solo, won't permanently grow faster than another country. Um, and the reason for that is because the more capital you get, um, the more you run into diminishing returns. Diminishing returns get stronger and stronger and stronger the more capital you have. The way I, and um, the way I put it to my students is that uh, Solar reminded us that twice the machines means twice the machines wearing out each year. Right. And that replacement cost is so important. And we can see this when you look at, say, failed development projects in poor countries, and you say, wow, they built this dam, and then they just couldn't keep up with the maintenance. They built this big electrical factory, and then it just started falling apart over time. Uh, Maintenance and repair, depreciation, is really crucial to um, being able to maintain a capital stock. So you got to be productive just to be able to maintain the capital you have. You know, I think one of the one of the um, add-on benefits of the solo model is that it really does remind us that one-time massive gifts of capital cannot make a country richer. A lot of us, a lot of people would probably intuitively think like, well, you know, if you, if you just went to West Virginia and gave the people there a uh, million dollars each, they'd wind up richer in the long run. If you just built, uh, a, put a trillion dollars worth of capital into the world's poorest countries, uh, that'd jumpstart prosperity. And Solo says, no, you know, that's just a lot of maintenance you got to keep up with. When you, when you build a trillion dollar project, and uh, 5% of it's falling apart each year, that's $50 billion of maintenance and repair. That's really hard to keep up with. Yeah, and for people who haven't like actually gotten the hand, their hands dirty playing with these models, that, that's what you are talking about. It's the thing I was hitting and realizing my intuitive notions going into this enterprise were at least too fuzzy, and I had to refine them. That, yeah, like 
a fixed population and they got machines, you know, you just build some simple model and okay, and you can use the machines to make whatever apples and every year. And there's a trade-off between how much output and you can do whatever you want, whatever the savings rate, like in terms of total output, how much goes into making more machines. And as long as there is at least a, a non-zero depreciation rate that they can keep accumulating this huge stockpile of machines. But at some point, no matter what the savings rate you picked every year from that point going forward, it's just, they're going to be replacing you yeah. know, the, the so machine, the, the fraction of output they devote to buying new or to making new machines will just replace the machines that wore away in the previous period. Yes. And that's, that's kind of crucial. the intuition realizing, oh yeah. So just low, you know, just saving more, having a time preference change per se is not going to give you, you know, perpetually higher rates of growth. Yes. And it's because of the power of diminishing returns. Diminishing returns is a curse and it's something that we probably really have to live with. Right. Um, I think of the, I think there's really something actually quite Austrian about the um, the, the macroeconomist take on diminishing returns to capital because it really is a case of human action where someone who has a new machine uh, you if you have ten if you're handed ten new machines the first one you're going to use in the most important task the one you subjectively see is most important and then after that you're going to use your second machine on the task that you think is subjectively second most important you're going to use your brain to organize. Uh, the the order of tasks across your 10 different machines. And so you're going to take on the most important one first and the 10, 10th most important one 10th. Um, again, this is a case where I think the Keynesians have uh, been a good contributor to this. In um, Olivier Blanchard, who was solo student, he's an MIT professor um, and great macroeconomist of Keynesian background. Um, in his textbook, he, uh, he has an intermediate textbook where he explains like, let me show you how diminishing returns to capital works. He says, after World War II in France, um, uh, the Nazis had destroyed an enormous number of bridges. A lot of uh, there had been a lot of damage. And what did we in France do after the war? We replaced the most important bridges first, the second most important bridges second, the third most important bridges third. And that was you know this human action. It was subjective human decision making about what was most important. So the diminishing returns to capital is, I think, a natural outgrowth of people looking at the world and saying some things are more important than others. Okay, great. Now you said something a minute ago that I, I dovetailed again with me struggling with, Hey, like I, you read human action and yeah. I don't remember his exact words, but Mises, I believe there says words, to the effect of, yeah, the, the reason that, you know, the Western nations are so much wealthier than the, the poorer ones. It's not because of a legacy of colonialism or whatever. It's because of capital per worker. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, they need to, and, you know, he was aware of the institutional prerequisites sure, and all that sure, kind of yeah. stuff, obviously. But then you said a minute ago, if I caught you that empirically, it is the case that, you know, some country that's got X times output per worker does have in the ballpark of X times capital per in the, worker. Definitely in the ballpark. I, so I, I, that's doesn't that make it students, sound like yeah. there's something there? Because it's, it's more like, yeah, but in the, if the solo model is true and yeah. you get in there and take your first order conditions, it must not be. So I'm just saying, couldn't somebody who's a little bit suspicious be like, well, that seems kind of coincidental. Like maybe Mises' statement was right and maybe Solo's uh -huh. model with the Cobb-Douglas with the exponents and blah, blah, blah. Maybe something screwy is going on there. Uh, it doesn't particularly depend on the on any math that he uses. What depend, What matters is that if you believe that there's reasonably strong diminishing returns to capital, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it impossible. So whether you, whether you can, in your mind, whether you think of that um, diminishing returns to capital as being like square root or like cube root or something else that starts off steep and gets flat, um, 
whatever number you're thinking of mentally, it's going to be captured by this general concept of diminishing returns. And again, like I said, um, the fact that capital only gets one third of the pie is a sign that capitalists uh, just aren't that important uh, for explaining okay, prosperity. Yeah, great. So and, then, and let me point out another yeah. thing. Like, let me just uh, j- jump in on this. That um, the another uh, element, another sign that d- there's diminishing returns to capital is that every that and it's pretty strong. Is that say after a war or after a natural disaster when a whole bunch of capital is wiped out, we always see fast growth at the beginning, slower growth in the middle, and then really slow growth at the end, which is just what you'd expect to see if there were really strong diminishing returns to capital. You take on the first most important projects first, second most important projects second, and so on. These are signs that diminishing returns are pretty strong, and another sign that you can't uh, you can't use like that. Like I said, if you use it, if you think of it as cube roots. A thousand times more capital will only get you ten times more output. A thousand times. I mean, that's pretty pretty powerful idea. I think right there. Excuse me. Yeah, definitely. I I just remembered what it was because you said it with the um, share. If I'm remembering how the math worked on that thing, it was critical that the fact that capital share was empirically about one third of total output. Mm-hmm. Is where the cube root element's coming in. So if that's instead, where the cube root comes from, yeah. If it had been 50-50, like yeah, half of GDP is attributable to labor and half to capital, then it would just be the square, right? Yeah, it takes a touch of calculus to get there, but basically the uh labor share of the pie is labor's exponent. Uh so and capital share of the pie mm-hmm. is capital's exponent. And that again, we nobody th- nobody worships these numbers to the fourth th- significant digit, right? Right. But right. as a as a ballpark idea, you'd think like Capitalists should be getting there. They're savvy people. They're greedy people. All those things are true. And um, the fact that they're only getting a third of the pie, um, t- considering they're taking on such often such risky investments, um, is a sign that uh, the market doesn't uh, value their contribution as much as it values workers' contribution. Okay, great. So what, what I wanted to ask you specifically on that is, is I, I take your point that, you know, of course, you're going to have a specific functional form in the thing that you teach yeah, in yeah. the class. but that's just a metaphor, right? Yeah. Um, but then you're saying, I believe that, you know, that intuition generalizes. Yeah. I think it does. Let me say what could be the intuition. You tell me if that's right or like, no, 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 it's something else is the idea that is the implication. Oh, if, if half the machines disappeared tomorrow, Uh then we would expect capital's share and total output to go up. Keep in mind, folks, total output would shrink a lot if yeah, half the yeah, machines disappeared, yeah, yeah. right? Okay. So make sure you're keeping that so yeah. that my statement's not completely nutty to you, perhaps. But is that the implication, right? That if, if a bunch of machines disappeared, we would expect the share of capitals, the share of output going to capital to go up? Actually, no. That's that's okay. one of the interesting implications of not just uh, solo, but this Cobb-Douglas production function, which in turn is indirectly borrowed from Newt Wicksell, right? So... Um, uh, who had so much influence on subjective theories of interest rates, right? Um, so here's the story is that the, it's a third, it, it ends up being a third no matter what. So if you have half the machines, the marginal product of capital is rising massively, right? So if we lost half our machines, the remaining machines we have would at the margin be worth so much more. So we want, so there would be a price signal to let us know that the marginal product of capital would be really high, Right. A bunch of capital gets wiped out, like after in Korea after the Korean War, Japan after World War II, France after World War II. The marginal product of capital, the return to investment is astonishingly high. And so uh, you've got, let's use your back of the envelope number there. You've got half the machines, but the marginal benefit of one more machine is twice as much. 
You've lost half your machines due to war. So important to get one more machine. And the invisible hand of the market is going to send that signal out to entrepreneurs. And uh, the way that signal is going to get sent out is that the return to capital, profits from investment, interest rates on loans will be much higher. And so people will be much more willing to supply capital in a country that um, uh, has just had a bunch of its capital stock wiped out. So this explains, uh, you know, another thing that the solo model helps you do is debunk the view that the Marshall Plan was crucial for Europe's post-war recovery, right? Um, you, you wipe out a bunch of machines, and as long as you've got, you know, decent institutional quality compared to before the war, um, the invisible hand of capitalism is going to make sure that a whole lot of capital flows into post-war France, post-war Germany, post-war Italy, um, to make to reap all those returns. You know, fortunes, of course, were made um, in that post-war era and rebuilding Europe. Why? Because the marginal product of capital, having one more machine, $1 billion worth of more machines, was incredibly high. Okay, just to be – so I, I'm fine with all that, but I just uh, – on the narrow question, yeah, you get rid of half the machines, clearly the marginal product goes up. Yeah. But the marginal product times now the half – are you saying the, the – Exactly balance out. Output. Okay. Rough, I mean it's a math model, right? That it right. exactly okay. balances out, right? Okay. So those and two effects helps, completely cancel the particular function shows. Okay. Yeah. And um, again, uh, there's a, a guy named William Gollin who had a, the best paper on this like well, getting old now, maybe 20 years ago, um, that looks at capital shares across countries. I think he estimates it as labor shares, the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, and he found that aside from the very poorest countries, uh, maybe the bottom, you know, countries in the bottom quartile of the global distribution, it was a good glib generalization that the labor and capital shares were roughly equal across countries. So very poor countries, uh, capitalists getting about one third, very rich countries, capitalists getting about one third. Um, in the very poorest countries, it's hard to tell, but that's partly data problems, mm-hmm. and it's partly because so many people there are uh, like if you're if you're an informal farmer, you are your own capitalist, right? Right. Um, and so the bl- blurring of capital and labor income gets uh, tougher in countries where people are doing a lot of informal labor. So yeah, in most countries in the world, it looks like this two thirds one third number holds up. And so if it's holding up in countries where capital is scarce and where capital is abundant. Where, product, where institutions are weak, where institutions are strong. That's, I mean, I won't say it's as, as strong a law as the quantity theory of money, uh, but it's, uh, you know, not too far from that. Okay. Another element that's near and dear to at least some Austrians um, is the distinction between, you know, physical capital goods and the monetary value of financial capital. Yeah. And where I noticed this distinction coming to, into play uh, in the, again, the Romer textbook uh, that we used at NYU, where they were, he was going through a demonstration, just, you know, precisely what we were talking about 10 minutes ago. Yeah. About, um, you know, and one of the, the pieces of evidence he used to say it couldn't possibly be that, yeah, to explain, like, I think the number he used was 10, like, yeah, the U.S., is t- you know ten times per capita output compared to India? I think he picked, you know, ballpark. And then he said, "Yep, using the Romer, you would expect there to be you know a thousand times more capital." And then he said, "And that can't empirically, we know that that can't be okay. true." You'd be able to tell by just eyeballing it, right? Looking at it, yeah. well, that, but also interest rates. He used exactly, and, and he's that's and, Lucas's point. Yeah, and so he used so there to to me as a you know a trained Bombavirkian, I was like, wait a minute, the you know the interest. In the Austrian school, you know, interest is not the marginal product of capital. Like they think that's a mm-hmm. category error. 
So I'm just curious, and this ties into the whole Cambridge capital controversy. So can you just explain, you know, your, you know, your personal take on all that stuff? And then if you don't want to say like, what role does solo play in that controversy? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, money interest uh, doesn't have to, I mean, I'm open to the idea that there's, you know, at least there's often in the short run, very, at least moderate to medium sized differences between the financial estimates of the marginal product of capital and the true capitalist, you know, what's actually going on in the world of business. But if differences in the marginal product of capital were so high, were high enough to explain uh, what we're seeing across countries, we would see massive black markets, right? If the return to a machine in India were 10 times what it is in the U.S., there would be a massive black market in capital, people doing whatever they could to smuggle machines in to help uh, to, to have underground clandestine uh, tech factories, to have kids uh, doing computer coding in the black market in order to replace American workers who are doing coding. I mean, when the differences are that big, we always know we see a black market, right? We would see some signals. There would be some combination of, of uh, activity that might not show up as price signals, but might show up as our classic signs of black market signals, that the, mass, that the return to capital is massive across countries. I'd say that's the biggest thing is that uh, uh, Lucas, excuse me, a solo, Lucas, uh, Easterly, all these folks together who've taken solo and, and moved him closer to the data over time, They've gotten us to look for multiple noisy, imperfect signals of whether uh, capital is the key driver of prosperity. And it's not that it's not nothing. It's not that it's not important in some sense, but that uh, differences in productivity overall seem to be the big driver, what we call total factor productivity. So there seems to be some form of magic that makes both machines and workers more productive in some countries than others. Okay, I want to return to the, the TFP to have you elaborate on that because that's yeah. something that comes up a lot that um, yeah. I think they gloss over too much, at least when I was in school. No, <laughs> like yeah, I, you're I right. had to go, like, I had to go look it up because like nobody was like telling me, like, well, what is that? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But be, for, just to again hammer the, so my understanding is at least one of the salvos in the Cambridge capital controversy, again, just so the folks at home have heard that phrase, like, yeah. is people like Joan Robinson were recoiling and saying, you, uh, you know, you Cambridge MIT people, what your, your whole framework, you're assuming that it makes sense to talk about what's the capital stock of a country uh -huh. or an economy when, no, you need to know what the interest is because there's all kinds of, you know, there's tractors, there's buildings, there's farmland and that, that, that. And how do you, well, I guess farmland. How on earth can you aggregate yeah. that, right? So how yeah. do you aggregate it? How well, you, you clearly that? need to know what the, the interest rate is at the very least to be able to do that. And so you're just arguing in a big circle because you're saying, oh, interest is the marginal product of capital. But how do you know how much capital stock the country has? Oh, you need to know what the interest rate is. So anyway, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, let me first uh, try to re report Solo's take on this. Sure. So he wrote a yeah. paper. Uh, he was about 30, 31 when he wrote this. And he says, uh, he addresses this battle, what we call the battle of the two Cambridges. He says, some people say you can add up the capital stock into one big number K you know, land and machines and houses and factories and tractors and all that. And some people say you can't. Personally, I belong to both camps. And I think that's very much a Robert Solo take. Mm. Um, you know, he, he knows that there are ways you can do it and there are ways you can't. My take on this is to look around and say, you know what's crazy to add up into one big number? GDP. And yet Austrians and non-Austrians alike are happy to use official government estimates of gross domestic product per capita and say, look at how much richer North Korea, South Korea is than North Korea. Look, I'm going to report an official government-provided GDP measure. 
How can if I can't add up uh, tractors and houses, how on earth can I add up ice cream and computer software? Those are even crazier to add up. But yet Austrians and non-Austrians alike are happy to say, hey, you kind of do it. So if I'm willing to, to bite the bullet and add together numbers into a GDP measure uh, and, and call something real GDP, which is absolutely ridiculous, and use that as a rough estimate of how productive some countries are compared to others, um, when comparing especially, say, communist to non-communist places, that's the old trope, um, then I should be willing to do it with capital, which is um, uh, all, uh, similarly useful. Um, you know, you know we, our aggregation theories are all, like, mediocre, but I... I you know, they rely actually on a very simple view, which is marginal productivity theory, right? If you think markets are kind of competitive, um, and again, all you need is, I don't, I don't believe markets are perfectly competitive, um, but I do think that um, prices are pretty broadly correlated with the marginal product of an input. Wage is kind of close to the marginal product of labor, at least in the private sector, because um, capitalists aren't running charities, and the same, if I believe that in the private sector for labor, I'm probably going to believe that in the private sector for cap for uh, capital as well. And that's really what we use to aggregate this idea. We say, well, if a capitalist is willing to pay five uh, percent interest to borrow the money for one more machine, um, then that's a that's a signal. That's a market based signal of one form of capital. So um, I think that's that's a way of looking at it that's useful. A remembering that we make much more cavalier additions and judgment calls when we create something called real GDP. And second, uh, that the ag these, these aggregation theories, the way we add up the capital stock, is built around the idea that uh, capitalists aren't fools when they're bargaining over the prices of houses and tractors and factories. Okay. So intuitively, like with real GDP, like, yeah, how do you compare ice cream and software? How much how many dollars do people spend on them yeah. respectively? That's how you add them up. So, so yeah, the battle of the two Cambridges was mm -hmm. just focusing on too narrow a thing, right? Right. If you're going to be a radical subjectivist, go the whole way and say, hey, there's no way I can really tell whether Zimbabwe is poorer or richer than the United States of America per person. Right. I'm a radical subjectivist. So it seems as though every radical subjectivist sort of draws the line somewhere and says, no, 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 no. Here I can really measure things. Right. You know, okay. why would I pick it? At, you know, why would I pick it for capital, but not for GDP? GDP is the much crazier thing to add up. But yet we all know that um, I ask my students this for most semesters. I say, what are the chances that the countries we call poor are actually the richest and the things that matter most? Right. And I say it in sort of a sing songy, sentimental voice. And we mm -hmm. know that's not true. Right. We, and we know it for multiple reasons, partly because of the official government statistics and partly because we know where people want to migrate to. Nobody says, hey, I want to migrate to the poorest countries in the world. Very few people do, at least, right? They say the, the movement, when people vote with their feet as migrants, uh, their movements track uh, official government estimates of GDP per capita pretty well. Let's now return to uh, the total factor productivity. You've said that a couple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the heck is that? Yeah, so uh, the, what it really is, is a way of noticing that, uh, you know, Moses Abramovitz, late, late economist, said um, – this thing called total factor, total factor productivity is, quote, a measure of our ignorance. So um, it's the je ne sais quoi of macroeconomics. So when sometimes you look at a country and you say, wow, a country got richer between uh, this year and last year, but they didn't add any more people and they didn't add any more machines. So how'd they make more stuff? And the answer is magic, which we call total factor productivity. So when, it, when you look at a, at, at a country 
across time and you say it produced more stuff without adding extra people or extra machines, you say, well, it must have been some third je ne sais quoi factor, something that I don't know what to call it. And so we call it total factor productivity. Um, the same thing is true across time. You can look at countries that have, you know, uh, in, in principle, the same amount of machines per worker, maybe even the same amount of official education per worker, and yet one country produces much more than another. And we say, well, what is that? Well, we got to have a term for it. And Abramovitz called it the measure of our ignorance, and we call it total factor productivity. And why do we call it total? It's, it reflects this fact that, like I said before, both machines and workers want to be in the most productive countries, right? And both machines and workers try to get away from the least productive countries. So there's something that makes both the machines and the workers better in some places, right? We don't look around the world and say, wow, there are a bunch of countries that have so much capital per worker that they've outcompeted the workers and the wages are just have plummeted. You look around across countries and you say, wow, the places where people are making the most money are also the places where the capitalists are making the most money. Kind of weird. There's some right. kind of mm. magic. One of my professors called it, uh, looks like, uh, called it magic pixie dust. Reference to Tinkerbell, right? Um, and, uh, you know, nowadays we have a much, uh, we have, a, a, it's very common to refer to this as institutional quality, that there are, that good rule of law, good institutions, uh, legal system might be an important part of what makes both capital and labor more productive in some places than others. Um, and I, I think that's a focal point now for macroeconomists, it's a way in which Solo helped, Solo helped kick off a process of getting us to say, A, it's not capital that explains the wealth of nations, so what is it? Um, at least not most of the wealth of nations, must be this thing we call total factor productivity, a magic that makes both machines and workers more productive some places than others. And then why does that differ across countries? And we start calling that institutions that help give birth to, you know, whether the, you look at the Doug North approach, which is a little more Austrian, I'd say, there, or the Asimoglu approach, that's a little bit more neoclassical. Um, they're both kicked off debates about why it is that institutions differ across countries and across time. Okay, and just for people who are getting lost at step two, if you say, "Oh yeah, this country, you know, this year they had a certain amount of per capita productivity, then or output, and then ten years later it was higher. Their population didn't go up, their capital stock didn't go up. You know, it's not that they found new copper mines or whatever. So what explains it? What if someone's first inclination is to say, well, maybe the popular, maybe the workers got more productive? Like, why are you calling it TFP? Why not just call it worker productivity? Ah, that's a good point. Um, so it could be a form of workers becoming more productive, but it would have to, they'd have to be getting pr more productive in a way that's making the machines more productive too. So if we're looking at the world and we're noticing, hey, capitalists are still getting a third of the pie, even though they started producing a lot more then having the workers get more productive um, must have been helping get, make the machines more productive. When we look around the world, if we, if we see that growth is associated with, we often use this term um, steady state growth sometimes, mm -hmm. um, where we notice across time, even though the country is getting more productive, um, the capital share is staying the same, the split in the pie between workers and machines are staying about the same. That's a signal that uh, whatever is making the economy grow more is making both the capitalists and the workers more productive at the same time. So otherwise, if it weren't the case, suppose you were right, there was just a simple case. 
Um, suppose it was just the, the workers getting more productive and it didn't in any way help make the machines more productive. Mm-hmm. You know, the workers are sort of on their own path, right? Then what you'd see is that as the workers get more productive, they'd be getting a bigger and bigger and bigger share of the economic pie and the capital share would shrink, 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 as, which is kind of what the Marxists predicted, right? They predicted a falling rate of profit, right, as economies grew. Um, so if, if growth were associated, if growing economies saw the capital share shrink over time, that would be a sign that workers getting more productive did not help the machines, right? Instead, when we see economies getting more productive, we see both the workers getting paid more and the, the machine share of the pie staying the same. They're, they're split. The truce, that, the social truce they've called, this two-thirds, one-third truce in the income streams, uh, seems to stay stable even in rapidly growing economies. Again, you kind of would have, you might have thought like, well, um, at the beginning, capital is really important because they need a lot of it. Maybe the capitalists are in charge because they, we, you know, so their, their share of the pie should be really big. And then eventually as capital gets more abundant, maybe diminishing returns are uh, kick in really strong. And so the capitalists get a smaller and smaller share of the pie as you get richer and the workers get all the benefits. That's like, it's not what happens. It's like this weird truce. This two thirds, one third truce happens after massive post-war economic growth recoveries, which you know, really rapid changes. That's a sign that whatever's going on, it, it, like I said, it could be the workers getting better. I mean, that's often the way economists think about it, the workers are getting better. But they're, they're getting better helps both themselves and the machines. Okay. Um, it's, it's strange, but true, right? And the yeah. way we can tell is the, 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 the pie slices stay about two-thirds, one-third, all the okay. way, even through rapid transformations. So is this just the flip side of what I asked you about, whatever, 15 minutes ago, about saying if, if the machines got cut in half – the yeah. share of output going to the machines. So likewise, if the workers effectively doubled, yes. like originally they were doing it a stupid way and then some great then guys they start said, doing a smart way. Yeah. Hey, you know, take untie your left hand from behind your back. And now everyone, it's, it's as if we have twice Absolutely. as many workers, the share of output going. So output would go up, obviously, if now yes. all of a sudden, That's but you're obvious. saying the share going to workers would still be the same. Yeah, because they're making the machines more productive. And it's the, right. the reason I should believe they're making the machines more productive is that um, is that the worker is that the capitalist share of the pie isn't shrinking. OK, and just to be clear, that's empirical. Like we just see yeah, it's it, an empirical that, fact. We just right. see it around. Right. You could write yeah. out like a production, a simple model where that wouldn't be true. The doubling the amount of workers might easy, lower yeah. the share or whatever. Absolutely. It's very okay. easy to write down a story. Um, so that's the fun of mathematical economics is that you can write down a bunch of models that just don't fit the facts. Mm-hmm. And you can say, if these models don't fit the facts, I probably shouldn't believe them. If they don't even come close to fitting the facts, I should just toss them out. And so we stick with this co- this weird sim- Cobb-Douglas oversimplification, um, which would have made – did make – I'm sure made Joan Robinson very upset because it fits these big stylized facts. that uh, Both economies across time – when I do a cross-section comparison or I look at countries that went through rapid economic growth, capitalists are getting one-third of the pie, workers are getting two-thirds. Um, that's a sign that whatever in a, whatever is making a country more productive over time is something that sort of sprinkles a little magic pixie dust over both the machines and the workers. So that, you know, mm-hmm. I, uh, so the capitalists are making the – I mean, it's a very Pollyanna-ish story, right? It's a very optimistic story. It's almost too good to be true. The machines are making the workers more productive on average – the uh, workers are making the machines more productive on average. Oh, it's all a big, you know, happy Disney song at the end here. Okay, great. Um, I saw a funny 
uh, shoot, I wish I, sh- I should have dug it up and I forgot to. Um, it was solo kind of, uh, I guess, throwing shade is what they might say. Yeah, yeah. On uh, like Lucas and Prescott say, saying something along the lines of, when I see their, dem- I don't even want to get into their argument and start debating yeah. like particular details of their production, but because you've conceded the, the whole point to them that no, their model is so prima facie ridiculous that I'm not even going to, you know, give them the best. I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but no, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Uh, let me tell yeah. you what, what you said about it. So it's a, you'll find that people find this online. He says, if I meet a man and he tells me that he is, that he thinks he is Napoleon, I do not start debating with him. The, Military tactics at the Battle of Austerlitz, Napoleon's great victory. He says, I just changed the topic, right? And so to him, um, when Lucas and Prescott and uh, Sargent in the 1970s, these rational expectations economists, uh, started trying to explain business cycles using very simple models, the way he used simple models to explain growth, he said, no, 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 no. I'm I'm totally cool with using my simple model to explain the wealth of nations. I'm not willing to use simple models to explain business cycles and recessions. When it comes to that, we need to use a whole bunch of like gobbledygook and this is and that's and subjectivity and whatnot. So I think this is a case where, you know, Solo is cracking a joke. It's a funny joke if you take it lightly. Um, I don't take it seriously as economics. Everyone can always ridicule another economist for being too reductionistic, for being too too, too simplistic. Um, for using ridiculous oversimplifications. So um, Solo is as guilty of this as any other economist, right? He made a joke about it in his youthful paper when he said he's on both sides of the Capital Cambridge controversy, right? Mm-hmm. You, um, and But then he, he launched the same kind of attack that Joan Robinson would have, would have launched at him. He launched that same attack against uh, Lucas and other people when they were trying to explain business cycles. So that that attack was um, basically about business cycle theory, about okay. monet- whether monetary monetary shocks and recessions. Okay, thank you for giving. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. his original quote was funnier than mine, and I couldn't remember. But yeah, he said, it's yes. worth looking up. It's a good quip, right? But again, yeah. it it works just as well on him as it does on his target. We're all hypocrites on this on some level, right? We all pick a point and say, "Here's the abstraction I like." Well, yeah, on that I noticed. Like for example, Austrians a lot are are big on like you know criticizing somebody's model and we, you know you should and I point out well to teach comparative advantage you know don't you kind of resort to a two country two good model just Absolutely, to you yeah. know work it through and you know so not that that's what you really think is happening in the real world but that's the essence so anyway yeah metaphors um, I mean it's just a rich a rich economic theory is a large rich list of metaphors now to go back though. Is it also true, as I'm concerned the listener might misunderstand, one of the things that I know guys like Krugman and stuff, people like that are launching against Lucas et al. is to say, oh, yeah, they they had these real fancy models with all this fancy math and everything. And so is it is the critique, though, that it's simplistic in the sense of, oh, you're assuming a recession must be like an optimal equilibrium outcome and we all know that in the reality, that's just, that's not what's going on here. The world's more complicated than that. And you can be stuck in disequilibrium and that, that, that. And, you know, Solo is uh, second to no one in having highly mathematical models by the standards of economists. So, it can't, and uh, Krugman has had his time uh, writing highly mathematical models as well. And that you can always say any of these models are simplistic. Everybody just seems to get mad about, um, whether the model gives them the answer that they actually believe deep down, right? Mm-hmm. So um, 
I think that's, so again, this is turning from growth theory where there's more of a consensus in our field to business cycle theory where there's much more debate and rancor. Of course, uh, one of the things that Robert Luca showed us is that business cycles barely matter at all from the point of view of human welfare, um, at least as we can estimate them, at least as best as we can tell. Um, Cross-country differences in growth, overwhelmingly much more important than business cycles. Um, uh, that was one of his great contributions. Um, so, you know, everybody just gets, I think everybody here just gets mad about what everybody else's assumptions are. Um, there was nothing, we found out quickly within a few years of the rational expectations revolution of the 70s kicking off, which was this business cycle theory about whether, about, it's about whether Keynesianism depended on infinitely stupid people to explain recessions, right? Um, it's about whether Keynesian theory depended on believing that there were permanent gluts, permanent surpluses of labor that somehow could never get cleared through market clearing prices, right? That's part of what that debate was about. Um, Lucas, Sergeant Prescott, these great pioneers of the 70s said, okay, maybe people are fooled for a while, but they can't be fooled forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this line that apparently Lincoln never said, uh, but uh, you, you can fool some of the people all the time, and you can fool all the people some of the time, you can't fool all the people all the time. And rational expectations theory was about saying, you can't fool people, all the people all the time forever. And what he did a good job of showing is that old Keynesian theory relied crucially on the idea of foolable people who were foolable for very long. And they got us to ask as a macroeconomist, how much foolishness do we think people are going to participate in when there are huge surpluses in markets? We look around at markets all the time and we see surpluses get eliminated very quickly, right? Financial markets, last 30 minutes of a garage sale. I'm willing to believe that a lot of markets take a month or two to clear, but am I going to really believe the Great Depression was about prices taking 10 years to adjust? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a little bit of like the math isn't doing the work here. It's me. It's my shoulder shrug right here that's doing the work. Right? I don't believe that markets take 10 years to clear. Okay. Right? And, and so, so again, I, I, and that modeling, my shoulder shrug is the modeling assumption that was so crucial, I think, in the rational expectations movement of the 70s. That's more important than any math. Right. Okay. And just to make sure people aren't getting lost, you're saying – the Keynesian view that, oh, with because the government was unwilling to engage in sufficiently yeah. uh, activist aggregate demand, you know, boosting deficits, that yep, the market was just stuck in this slump. And then, you know, and, and then you say, well, why doesn't it clear? Well, how come wages didn't fall? And say, oh, well, they're sticky. And you're just yeah, saying, it's okay. a bunch of hand-waving stories, right? Yeah, They've got their that, hand-waving that, stories. That can't explain a 10-year slump to say yes. that prices we- didn't adjust quickly. Yeah, if I see that if I see that the demand for housing uh, collapses in a town because, say, a military contractor moves away, right? A uh, military contractor moves out of a small town, and that used to employ half the people, right? I expect rents to fall quickly enough so that all the housing gets filled, or at least ninety percent, or ninety-five percent of it gets filled within a I don't know year or two, mm-hmm. right? So when I see massive changes in a market, massive declines in demand which is sort of the Keynesian and just, you know, weird extent, maybe of some Austrian versions of the business cycle theory. If I see that declines in demand are supposedly the cause of slumps, then I can't believe that slumps are going to last forever, right? They can only last as long as prices stay sticky, as, price, as we keep a surplus. And when we look around at other markets, we see surpluses of goods, of houses, of cars get cleared pretty quickly. And, through, and how do surpluses get cleared? Through falling prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically, uh, Lucas, Sergeant Prescott, these folks got us to pay attention to the market clearing power of prices, the power of prices to eliminate surpluses. 
And, um, and uh, people want, as soon as one brings that up, people want to change the topic. They want to bring up a bunch of other stuff. They want to talk about psychology. At the end of the day, you just have to come back and say, do you really think surpluses are going to last for a decade in any other market that you're familiar with? And if not, why are you going to believe it's going to be true here? Mm-hmm. Okay. Surpluses get cleared by falling prices. That's what, that's econ 101 and it's super true. Okay, great. Maybe a uh, final question here, just to kind of s- summarize and circle back. You've used the terms Keynesian and neoclassical as foils just for people. Can you give a just w- d- quick definition of what do you mean by those two different terms? Yeah. So um, Keynesians uh, tend to think that uh, business cycle fluctuations are mostly driven by demand side forces. And to, to be unfair to them, they often want to just throw away the supply curve and say demand is all I have to think about. Uh, they'll often invoke it. They'll often justify it by saying, oh, I think, pri- the, I think the price mechanism doesn't work really well in the short to medium run. So therefore, demand side shocks, whether it's investors getting optimistic and pessimistic, consumers getting optimistic and pessimistic, government having deficits or surpluses, demand runs the show in the Keynesian worldview in the short to medium run. Um, so they basically tend to be willing to invoke. Uh, traditionally, they were really willing to invoke uh, failures of market clearing um, as an explanation for business cycles. Milton Friedman helped uh, draw attention to how important that was in their story, which led to indirectly this neoclassical counter-revival, which said, you know, if we're going to say that market prices don't work, if we're going to say that markets don't clear quickly, we have to explain why. Um, if we want to say there's some kind of price confusion or some kind of sociological stuff, we should actually have to explain it rather than just assert it. So I think this was one of the great contributions of the neoclassical revival of the 70s and 80s, was getting economists to have to spell out why they thought markets weren't clearing in the short run, why they thought there were labor surpluses during recessions and labor shortages during booms, which somehow overwhelmingly got met through um, supply just being totally passive, right? Normally in in economics, we see like if demand's really high, um, we see prices rise a lot, and that clears the market. If demand's really low, we see prices fall, and that clears the market. Business cycle theorists for too long got away without um, having to explain why they didn't think markets would clear within a month or a quarter or a year. The neoclassicals drew a lot of attention to um, having to justify any deviation from market clearing. I think that's a great contribution. Okay. And who would be some of the big names in both camps? Uh, so with with uh, traditional Keynesianism, it's going to it's going to be Keynes, it's going to be um, Paul Samuelson, it's going to be Jim Tobin, uh, and it's going to be Robert Solow actually. Um, Robert Solow co-authored an important paper, making it sound like um, that there was an unemployment inflation trade off that was pretty permanent. James Tobin wrote the same thing too back in the '60s. They thought like, well, um, if we want a lower unemployment rate, we just have to put up with uh, permanently lower unemployment rate. I should emphasize. We could just put up with permanently higher, slightly higher inflation. They mm-hmm. thought that there was that the trade-off between unemployment and inflation was a menu you could just order off of. Um, and uh, on the neoclassical side, it's going to be Lucas, Sargent, and Prescott. Uh, of the two, two have passed away now. Uh, Robert Lucas passed away last year. Prescott uh, a couple years before that. Um, and and Tom Sargent. Tom Sargent's still with us. Uh, he's written some great. If you want to read, if people want to read a short readable equation free thing by him, I really recommend the ends of four big inflations, where he looks at the ends of the hyperinflations in Europe 
uh, between World War I and World War II. And he says, they got their, rid of their inflation, not when they stopped printing money, but when uh, they made it clear to the markets that they were going to stop running unsustainable deficits. This helped explain, this helped justify the view that it's helped sell a lot of us on the view that um, getting your act together, policy credibility, commitments to good policies, that changes the world right now. It's yet another one of these many cases in, e in neoclassical theory where the future can cause the present. Credible future policy changes make people change their behavior right now. And the ends of four big inflations is a nice example of how, showing how uh, the way the European countries got rid of their interwar hyperinflations was, um, was really through getting their fiscal act together. Okay. I have to ask, since you, you teed sure. me up, regarding the recent debates over the disinflation that happened in the United States. Yeah, yeah. You know, the team transitory. And one of the arguments that the team transitory people are saying is, no, the Fed rate hikes and tightening, that couldn't possibly explain what happened because the timing doesn't matter. That, the, you know, the 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 rate of CPI growth had already turned around before the rate hikes were really underway. Uh -huh. And then the other side says, well, it could be expectations. The be Fed expectations, said, we're yeah. going to start tightening. And so people, so anyway, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that um, the future causes the present in so many areas, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people win the lottery. They're told they're going to get their first check in six months. They go out and start spending now. Um, and uh, people, I mean, there's, there's a lot to discuss the inflation, you know, why inflation fell and what team transitor and whatnot. But people expected the Fed to fight inflation eventually, right? They knew mm -hmm. they might get a little behind the ball. They might be a little uncertain. But eventually, uh, we were pretty sure that, Amer that uh, our Federal Reserve was the kind of people they are not going to let inflation get out of control uh, for more than a couple of years, as long as Congress isn't behaving too crazy, at least. Um, I, I think that uh, I think Gaudi Egertson, who's a, a new Keynesian, we call him, um, he, he was making this point on Twitter quite well the other day. And I'd say in that respect, he was willing to stand up to his co-author, Paul Krugman, who's officially much higher prestige. Gaudi Egertson acted like an economist and stood up for good economic thinking, even though he wasn't, it wasn't helping the team of his co-author, Paul Krugman. So yeah. I, I think, I, I'm always happy when I see economists being willing to stand up for good science, even if I don't particularly agree with their interpretation. Right. I, being willing to stand up um, against some kind of political side, that was great. So. Yeah, I retweeted him and said something like, "Hey, this is the third time on Twitter I've seen someone an economist admit he had been wrong or something." Because yeah, he he said that yeah, in 2021 I thought it was going to be transitory, but the no, data kept coming in, and I realized I had misdiagnosed what's going on here. Yeah, I think the Fed's uh, the Fed basically making it. It's not just that um, the actual rate heights mattered. I think all of the signals from. Um, not just the hawkish members of the Fed, but the more dovish members of the Fed uh, made it clear to, to, to price setters all throughout the economy, oh, wow, they're really not going to let this happen. So mm. basically, it's one of these cases where showing you're willing to be tough it helps uh, change behavior now, right? This is, this is very much in the Teddy Roosevelt line. Speak softly and carry a big stick, right? If you carry the big stick, it makes it less likely you have to use the big stick. So having a broad swath of Fed officials go out and give speeches saying, Oh, of course, we're willing to create a huge recession if that's what it takes to bring down inflation. If you say that 10 times, it makes it less likely I have to create a big recession to bring down inflation. Okay, very good. Uh, so, folks, my guest has been Garrett Jones. Garrett, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great experience. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you learned a lot about Robert Solo and other matters, and we'll see you next time. 
Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org. Mises.org.